0: So um, yeah, well Peter, that's, uh, I'll pray for you. Yeah yeah, and then we'll start. Um, um, yeah. Father, we're grateful that uh, through our lives, the way you've ordained it, Lord, that uh, we've got to meet Peter and I know when we, before we were born uh, you knew what our paths would be in our lives and how it' all orchestrate together and you've woven it together that we could become friends and I'm grateful for that. And uh, thank you for the work through your spirit you've done in his life and uh, the worldwide vision he has for being an evangelist to the Jewish people. And um, we know, Lord, that in the end times they're going to receive you again as their Messiah, but right now they have a hard heart towards you. And we just pray for Peter's continued ministry to, uh, to help uh, bridge the gap between the rejection of you and seeing that you are the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We pray, Lord, for um, his time with us now, and you—not all of us here, Lord—are lacking knowledge when it comes to, um, you know, your 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 big picture for Israel. Like we all have bits and pieces, Lord, but nothing like Peter does. So we pray, God, that you teach us, you educate us, and if we have any uh, areas that we need to grow in, Lord, that you um, through Him give us that wisdom now, and it may it not just be knowledge, but something we can apply like through our own conversations with people within the church because even within the church lord people have rejected uh, israel's purposes and we know that that's not your way and your desire desire for the nation so god just uh yeah give us wisdom and help us uh, grow in our own faith and just speak through peter um i know he's prepared but maybe your spirit has something new for him to say or say a different way that he hasn't said before and, and we just pray Lord, that we uh that you guide
1: them into truth in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks okay. Andrew. Yeah. It's wonderful to be back here and I'm excited about uh, to share with you about this and um, just, you know, what I'll do is before I jump into this, I'm going to show a short little video about what I do with Bridges for Peace. But it's an over—it's basically it's a video about the overall ministry of Bridges for Peace. It's nice, concise, and short. But we've been around since 1976, based in Jerusalem, Israel. Um, the Canadian office, I believe, was started in '87. So I'm, and it was started in British Columbia and then it moved to Winnipeg. So when uh, my wife and I li- were living in Israel, and the Lord surprised us and called us back out of nowhere because we thought we were going to spend the rest of our days there. Um, we came back after three years and um, we joined the team here so I'm based, we're both based out of Winnipeg but I work full-time with the Canadian Office I'm the Deputy National Director so I'm kind of in line and to be the next National Director and my boss, Eric, he says you know as long as God, your wife, the board and I and Bridges see fit you'll be the next (laughs) National Director (laughs) but no that's that's where we all feel that the Lord is leading us and so uh, my responsibilities are, uh, you know, which, which is the vision of Bridges for Peace is reaching out to the, the Jewish people and uh, showing them a genuine Christ-like love, connecting with them, showing them the love of Christ in every facet that possible, but also educating the church, re- reaching out and connecting to the church because of the, the gap, this age-old gap between uh, the church and uh, the Jewish people. And in so many contexts, you know, when I spe- say, speak of the church, in a larger context, I'm not maybe speaking about you or this congregation, um, but in a, in a more of a macro context that uh, the church is, is quite arrogant towards the Jewish people, towards the, the, cov- the covenant, the, the whole concept of that. And it's interesting because when we look at the Bible in a biblical context, um, we really do see it's, you know, th- even the church, but the nations, we're like the supporting caste. You know, the pri- the, pr- the primary actor of the scriptures that God is, is working through are the Jewish people in Israel, from Genesis to Revelation. And this is this is not an issue of favoritism. He chose them because he wanted to bring his light to the entire world. But he established a covenant with them to uh, reach that purpose. So we, like Paul talks about, we're indebted to the Jewish people. We're indebted to, the, to Israel and we're grafted in. And this is where we have life as a church through... Uh, this olive shoot of israel and um and so but the the church has become so arrogant in in many ways, so arrogant they don 't even know it, and um, they tr- rattle off other explanations of how this is even possible that the church could replace Israel, how this is all works out and it's and it's quite an incredible thing um in one side you know when you, we, we read the scriptures we we talk about and we read about. The blindness or the the veil of Moses right over the, the Jewish people's eyes and that even through their unbelief God is using their unbelief to reach the nations it's an incredible thing that you know this is all about God not us if it was about us then like it would be just like a complete nightmare but God works even through unbelief God worked through pagan kings that never even knew him in the Bible and God also can work through people's unbelief and that's how amazing his mercy and love for the nations um, is is that even through Israel's unbelief, he can you'll reach the nations through their unbelief, and that unbelief will then be turned into belief. It's this incredible plan of God. He exists outside of space and time, and what's you know it's our our issues are so micro compared, and um, and so we're, we're so as there's like this veil of Moses in so in ways over the Jewish people's eyes, there is a veil of blindness over most of the church, and these things are are manifesting. Um, from replacement theology the idea that the, the church has replaced Israel and got all the blessings and the covenants and the Jews, the poor Jews are stuck with all the curses and there's, they're literally cut off in this in this uh, theology but that breeds Christian anti-Semitism, and these things are alive and well in the church today and being taught in I would have to say a majority of Christian seminaries and colleges and uh, you know there's nothing new under the sun and uh, yet God's going to have the final say and, um, and so that's why there's a need for an organization like Bridges for Peace. Um, and that was from, the, from our inception. So this video just show, talks a bit about that on that side.
2: Bridges for Peace, Christians supporting Israel and building relationships between Christians and Jews in Israel and around the world. Bridges for Peace, 50 years of blessing Israel and the church through compassion and revelation. Compassion, feeding Israel's hungry, caring for Israel's needy, repairing homes, giving hope to children in poverty, helping the Jewish people return to their ancient homeland. Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Revelation, bringing the Bible to life in its ancient Telling the story of Israel's miraculous rebirth, connecting Christians and the Jewish people through a grassroots global team of Christian representatives. For God's instruction shall go forth from Zion the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Bridges for Peace a Matthew 25 ministry dedicated to supporting the nation of Israel and bridging the centuries old gap between Christians and Jews. Bridges for your Israel
1: connection. Okay. So, why, st- why study this? History of Israel. Why, st- like, both biblically and extra uh, outside of the Bible, because um, some of these, well, some of what we're going to go over today isn't mentioned in, in, it's mentioned maybe in prophetic context, but not in historical you don't we, some of these things we don't find in there, but this is the backdrop. This is what's <laughs> happening in the background. This is um, a module from a, a greater uh, lecture series that I've I've been doing now at a, a number of institutions. So it was when it was it was created with the intent of really going from Abraham to today. So it, it's about 12 hours in in that setting. I, I mean it can be stretched definitely into probably 30. Uh, the amount of uh, research and work I put into this. Um, and so, but it's supposed to equip, it's, it's um, the purpose of this was to show, um, especially for the biblical period, um, <clears throat> the Hebraic context, the culture, the customs, um, the background to that Jewish interpretation of how, how do Jewish people see scriptures, which the scriptures, we have a lot in common. And I'm, when I'm, when I'm spek, uh, speaking of Jewish people, I'm, so I don't have to keep repeating myself, in a, in a context of a religious Jew. Because there are Jewish atheists. There's Jewish Buddhists and there's secular Jews that know nothing about the scripture. So I'm talking about uh, a modern Orthodox religious Jew. In that context, we will have a lot in common with someone like that. Uh, both um, the inerrancy of scripture, the value of scripture, prophecy, the the Messiah. Um, there's some obviously some differences of opinion with Messiah, but they believe in a, a literal, real person as Messiah. Um, and we... we, we cover some of these issues through here but why, what, how did they look at scripture? Um, because the, the scripture wasn't written in a, a Greek context a Canadian context, a British context, American. It was written in a Hebraic uh, context that goes back 4,000 years of how they saw what, what is obedience? What is righteousness? What is um, t- what does taking care of the poor mean? What is um, works? What is sacrifice? What's atonement? All of these concepts um, that Christianity knows by name all had, all have a, a Hebraic concept uh, and context that were passed into the church. Um, the difference, though, is the church became overly Gentile throughout the centuries, which is a good thing, because that was the purpose of the gospel and the purpose of, the Lord, of God's ministry and work through uh, Israel. But with that... Um, the church, you know, using a, a phrase like de-Judaized, almost like it cut off many of these things. Um, you have a number of the early church fathers um, who were converted to Christianity from uh, Greek paganism and philosophy. And some of them blended, blended these, come on in. Some of them blended these philosophies into into their Christianity um, and so what has happened was some terms were hijacked in what their what their meaning was. Um, what happened was uh, maybe a, a little bit of a skewed concept of, of uh, what does this term mean, um, looking at it through a, a Greek context. Um, I mean, the, e- the easiest one, and I, I don't know if I ever did this in Genesis House, but the, the easiest thing to probably would be like this. I'm going to borrow this. It would be like if I said, describe this to me. Um our our yeah, look at that, hey? You polish that off quick. But if I said describe this to me, this is like you know, a hands-on example of how our culture is not Hebraic, is most people would would describe it to me. Describe it to me. What do you what do you tell me about circular. this? It's circular. Both it's glass. What else? Anything else? Transparent. Okay, transparent. So that's those, these are all Greek Greek concepts. So we're uh, a Greek-minded person, which is our whole culture has been inf- influenced by this, is affected by form. That's how we see things. Um, form, what does it look like? You know, uh, aesthetics, things like that. The Hebraic cu- cu- uh, mindset is, what does it do? Function. So they'd say, that's a bowl to hold food. That's what they would say. They would just tell, oh, it's glass, it's this. The first thing, the most important thing to the Hebrew, um, the ancient Hebrew... And right up through Jesus' time, because the Hebrews were a very oral, uh, cultural people that passed everything down very rigidly. So they're concerned with function. How does it work? They don't care about what that's made out of, the fork. It you, is used to shovel food into your mouth. I can survive with this because I can take food, put it in there. I can do all kinds of things. That's, and that's when we read the Bible, the authors of the scriptures, that's where they're coming from. Which is why Jesus talks about the heart. All the time. He's talking about the heart. Which is maybe even a better way of saying than law, which is commandments, equals obedience. So in our Greek mindset, we usually say that equals legalism. But to the Jew, no, that equals obedience. This is what I live out. This is what I do. The function of what I do. Um, So when we read scriptures, we we almost have to... You know, if we want to unearth those hidden gems. If we want to understand the, 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 the Bible in its fullest context, its full body of context, and I'm not saying a person who isn't trained Hebraically or knows Hebrew and these kinds of things can't understand the Bible. Of course I'm not saying that. But if we want to under, go deeper and understand what's really happening here in the world that it came from, we have to think Hebraically. We have to kind of reverse our mindset and look at you know what did they intend when they wrote this stuff. So in in that same breath, there's a history going on here, and we see all kinds of things. The Bible, it, it brings forth history, but it's in, in, a, in a different way than you're reading just a flat-out history book. And oftentimes, the authors of the Bible are assuming that the reader knows what's happening, or knows the context, or knows the culture. I mean, you know, like the, the Apostle Matthew writing 2,000 years ago, and he's writing—he's not he doesn't have to go into every little detail about Passover, what Passover is. Anybody reading his gospel knows exactly what that is. But we're separated from 2,000 years. We have to understand what is Passover to understand the full dimension of the Last Supper, which is a Seder Passover meal. So th- there's incredible value in, in studying the history, which is why this was created, which was to bring us into the history, which then shows God's, kind of, God's finger working behind the scenes. And where we're going to start, hopefully we'll go to today. Is we'll have, unfortunately we have to kind of move through it. This isn't going to be exhaustive, but we're going to go with kind of the rise of the Maccabees, right to the end of the Second Jewish Revolt, if we can cover that, which will include the the world of Jesus. And I'm going to I'm, we're approaching this from a very historical context. Um, of unearthing these things, but hopefully you'll start to even read your Bible and some of these uh, stories a little bit differently and start thinking a little bit differently in regards to what was happening here, because while this was all going on, while this was all marching forward, there's a whole, there was a whole history of nations and people that were impacting the Jews and where we find ourselves today. So we're going to just start with the empires, kingdoms and the Republic. And when, when we, you go through your Old Testament, the Tanakh, and we, we go through, we have the Assyrians, you, know, right? you, have, you have Saul, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, the nations divided in the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. They go on, the northern kingdom is quite evil. A lot more, They have a, they're a string of way more evil kings than the, the south. The Assyrians come in and destroy the northern kingdom. In 722, um, later, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, is destroyed in 586 under Nebuchadnezzar, under the Babylonians. Babylon is replaced by Medo-Persia, and then the Medes kind of just fade out, and Persia becomes the, the giant. And Cyrus, and this is the prophecy that Jeremiah predicted, and, well, not predicted, but prophesied, Cyrus, um, Jeremiah says that, you know, we're going to come back in 70 years. This This exile will be 70 years. And after 70 years, in 516... Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, Ezra, these incredible men go back and return and rebuild the city and, be, and rebuild the temple. And we have Ezra opening up the Torah and he's, he reads it and it's an incredible thing. When you Read it in Ezra and Nehemiah when he reads to the people, uh, for many of these people, for the first time they've ever heard this, like read in full. And it's, they rise up and they, and they stand like all day listening to this and it's just an incredible thing. And uh, Ezra was also a scribe. So he, he's, we, you begin to understand a lot more about these men. He's not just a Jewish man. He's not just a leader. He's a scribe. He writes Bibles in, on scrolls. But it's not just writing a Bible. There's a whole uh, system behind that of incredible significance of how they write. Um, singing it and, and counting the letters and, and this, uh, just everything and the value. They don't worship the scrolls. But this is God's word. This is literally the word of God, unchanged. That's what they. That's what they believe. That's what we believe. The Scripture tells us, and so they they return, but not all of them come back. There still is a Babylonian Jewish community that stays, but we have uh, Ju- Judah in a way. It it becomes a satrapy or a, a province of Persia. It has semi independence, but it's able to um, rebuild, and uh, Persia then is replaced by Alexander the Great. Persia becomes incredible and massive, and per- all these empires are expansionists. So Persia continues to press... That's not working on that. Is it? Oh, whatever. Um, it continues to press westward, and it, and it expands, and it starts to infringe and push against the, the Greek colonies, And the Greek kingdom of Macedonia, which is expanded by King Philip, which will be Alexander the Great's father. And he expands this with the intent of invading uh, Persia. Because we all know about the the, the Battle of Marathon, Thermopylae, these kinds of... There have been Persian invasions happening um, during the the Second Temple period when Zerubbabel and then come back. Persia is already expanding and pushing and and threatening the Greeks. Um, When Alexander the Great's father is murdered, is assassinated, Alexander of Macedon uh, basically uh, starts kind of a, you know, a rumor whether it actually was solidified with proof or not. You know, Darius or Darius has paid gold coins to kill my father. Basically, the king of Persia has assassinated the king of Greece. And Alexander is able to unite the Greek colonies and he marches east um, with a, a large army dwarfed when you compare it to the, the armies of Persia, but it's incredible of the conquest and this map just depicts that, that he literally conquers practically the, whole, the known world. Um, you know he stretches right down to India and he dies at 33 years of age from uh, his body is just weak from wounds, excessive excessive drinking and uh, like that's probably actually what killed him is that he drank so much his body was unable to recover from the wounds I mean, he, he'd been wounded many, many times. But he dies in Babylon, and he doesn't name an heir. Um, he just says, my kingdom will go to the strongest. That's, that's according to uh, the, the people that surrounded him on his deathbed. That's what he says. My kingdom will go to the strongest, because they're all asking, what's going to go on with your kingdom, Alexander? And Alexander's desire was to create a one world. It's quite interesting. When, we, when we, you study like the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness... And Alexander's goal was to create a one-world government a world ruled by one man one currency one language Hellenism everything Greek that he spread um, that was his desire and um, he doesn't see it come but he does uh, but he uh, come through but he dies and we have these the incredible prophecies of Daniel I mean when we look at from Daniel 7 to 11 and the, the goat and the ram and these nations that are going to come up this is this is that period of, you know, the, of Persia being crushed um, and then out of the, uh, four rising up and you, can, you read it right in Daniel's prophecies and that, that he, he prophesies this. So Alexander the Great's kingdom is split really into four and the, the two that were, are, we're the most interested in is Ptolemy which was one of his generals and Seleucus Ptolemy ends up taking the lands of Egypt and at this time he also takes what would be modern day Israel, the land of Israel so ptolemy takes this and this seleucus takes pretty much most of everything eastward and seleucus um, is also one of his those are the two most powerful generals under alexander the great and all of these men are um they're macedonians but they're hellenized so they're in the, they are controlling land that has been thoroughly hellenized and this is their intent and this will kind of just show you a little bit of the four main ones. So there's others like Parthia and Bactria. Those lands get siphoned off um, and ruled by other kings. But we're interested in the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, or the, mo- and the, the mo- major two ones, the green and this yellowish-tan color. Those two are rivals, and none of, the, none of the, um, these Greek generals get along. They're always competing, and they're always trying to um, conquer each other. The Seleucid, um, uh, they really see themselves as, you know, the inheritors. This should have all been ours. And so they're always at war with the Ptolemies. And um, throughout these wars arises a man named uh, Antiochus Epiphanius. And his name literally means, in Epiphanes is God manifest. And the people that all hated his guts (coughs) would call him Antiochus Epimenes, which meant madman. So they did like a spin on his own Greek name and called him the madman. Um, but Antiochus uh, Epiphanius saw himself as an Alexander the Great. Um, he wanted to restore uh, the honor and order of his nation. And he was also, uh, he, when he was growing up, his father had lost a massive war against the Romans. And the Romans at this point were a republic, not an empire. So this is before Julius Caesar and all of them. So his father had lost a war and had basically given up his son as a hostage. And that was a... a, a A custom that they did in those days to um, basically to guarantee payment, because when you would lose, right, the people you lost to would say you owe us this money every year, and they they basically um, took like a massive amount of money from the that the Seleucid kingdom had to pay to Rome every year, but the Romans would take hostages to demand to ensure that the payment. If you don't pay, we'll kill your hostages. Well, this is the son of the king, so Antiochus spent years in in Italy in Rome watching and observing the Romans. He, he was treated very well. These weren't prisoners. He would have been feasting with high-level uh, Roman aristocrats. He uh, studied their armies, how they uh, and their their paganism, their form of paganism, everything, but he hated Rome. And when he was released after the conditions were met, he basically went back to the, his kingdom, became king, and said, I'm going to pay the Romans back, um, but first I'm going to destroy the Ptolemies. And uh, he waged a number of wars with the Ptolemies, pushing them into Egypt. And right before he could finish them off, uh, Rome sent a legate. Literally an old man met Antiochus and on the beach. Antiochus has his whole army, 60,000, war elephants, everything. And Alexandria is right in front of him. He's about to take it. And he's met by this old man on the beach, this Roman legate, who basically gives him uh, an order and says turn your army and leave uh, and go back, like to Antioch. You're not welcome here and you, this is, you can't go any further. And uh, he actually draws a line in the sand around him and says, before you step out of the circle, give me an answer that I may lay before the Senate. And this king accepts and he says, we'll retreat. So that shows you also the growing power of Rome at this time. But Antiochus is so enraged and humiliated that when, when he's going back and he goes through the land of Israel, and he's passing Jerusalem, and he finds Jerusalem in a stage of rebellion because a rumor in the rumor mill had had been passed around that said Antiochus was dead. So there was a big rebellion in the city. Uh, basically, they shut the gates of the city. Antiochus comes to his own city and finds it shut up. So he sends in his soldiers, and they, they sack the city, kill about 40,000 people. It's just horrendous. He plunders the temple. And so this is all happening in a, in what modern day scholars and historians and pastors will all say the 400 silent years right so that and i like to say these years are anything but silent really it's incredible you can see god's hand working i mean they use that term because uh, related to prophecy but oftentimes people you know they kind of forget that it means prophecy and they just kind of think well god wasn't really doing anything that's why i'm bringing it up so um antiochus sacks the city And just does horrific things, and then he goes back to Antioch, and he and he leaves these governors in the land of uh, of Judea. And what happens is he's trying to Hellenize his people, his whole kingdom. And what that means is, I mean, Hellenism really was hedonism—the worship of the body, the the worship of pleasure. They literally and physically worshipped it. Like if you even if you were a sick, if you had a disease, you were like to be put away. Like that's. You know, even babies would be the infant side. They would just be abandoned if they had a deformity because that isn't beautiful. So they literally worshipped the body, worshipped pleasure, and then had their gods. Well, that's okay for all the other people groups under Antiochus's thumb, except the Jews, because for pagans, I mean, it's not a thing for a pagan to just accept. Well, more gods, whatever. You know, I'm sure. I'll, I'll accept more gods. I'll get some more money, and I'll be a kinsman to the king. Like, why not? But to the jews this is a serious problem and the jews of judea were divided though because there were some jews who uh, were hellenists themselves um you know you really traitors to their own people traitors to the word of god traitors to everything um natural and these people were so close to the king so hellenized they were even called antiochians so they were like just buddy buddy with the king you know anybody Anybody who wants to honor the God of Israel and honor the word of God should be killed. Like that's just like the last thing in the world. And these these were Jews, but also some of them were priests. It's incredible. Um, and so what what happens is Antiochus is wanting to strengthen his empire so he can one day go against Rome. So that's why he initia- uh, initiates these edicts of Hellenism. You must offer uh, to Zeus, as, a, as a, which he basically put, his own face into Zeus. Like, you know, he sees himself as the offspring of Zeus. So he, um, he sends a royal emissary to Jerusalem named Apelles. And, and they, they, take the, they basically uh, dedicate the temple, Zerubbabel's temple, to Zeus. And they slaughter pigs on the altar. And then they have a whole orgy. Like, it's just like in the Holy of Holies. Like, when you read like this, it's just like everybody does this. And um, just a complete blasphemous act. And in this time, thousands of Jews flee Jerusalem, and they're like refugees, and they go into Judea, into the towns and villages, and that's where they settle. So he tells Apelles, is this royal emissary, he is the power of the king, to take that law as if Antiochus Epiphanes is there in the flesh. He is, he is uh, to take this to all the villages, and force the villages to bend the knee to this, to this will. And... Um, and what they do is not only that, but if you're caught studying the Bible, you are burned alive. if you if a, If a Jewish uh, person circumcises their child, their son, their, the ch- the son and the mother are to be thrown off the walls of the city. If uh, you go up to offer sacrifice and pray in the temple, you are slaughtered because they had, they built a tower that could overlook and look down into the courtyards of the temple. So and we know that P- that n- number of numerous Jews refused. To do this and were and were killed for their faith like people still tried to go up and sacrifice and the seleucids would rush out with their spears and kill them or throw women down from the walls <laughs> if you were praying you were burned alive as well and or uh burned with firebrands and like it was just a horrific time of intense persecution uh thousands slaughtered and um just a very dark period yet in that period we have this apelles guy and he goes to this village called Modiim. And he, and, he, and he meets with... I mean, he's meeting with the leaders of every village. Because that's what you do. If you get the leaders and their families on board, well, then the whole village will turn, right? It's. I mean, it works like that in the church, too. If you have a solid pastor and a solid leadership, you have great fruit growing. If you have really <laughs> scandalous stuff and corrupt stuff, you know, whoever chooses to stay is going to be influenced by that. I mean, so Apelles goes, he seeks out this man named Mattathias. Mattathias has five sons. And he says, assemble... Um, I want you to assemble the whole village, like in the hour, in in the village square. And Modi'in is a small village, about 200 people. And Apelles has gone to him with a, a small regiment, about 30 soldiers, and a, obviously a couple pigs, swines. And he and so the whole village get, uh, assembles there. And it's said that Mattathias and his sons put on their best clothes, their their Shabbat garments, their Sabbath garments. They put on their best clothes, groom their beards, and they come out there. And Apelles. Orders the, um, a number of the men and forces the men to build an altar. They build the altar, and then he says, "Now bring the pig, Mattathias, He says, "Come, kill this pig, offer it to Zeus." Which an offering was also meant he would have to eat the, the flesh of the pig. And Mattathias doesn't, but he doesn't move. He just stands there. And Apelles implores him, pushes him, and we can just get the idea that he's probably yelling at him, threatening to kill. Uh, anybody in this village, because he had done it before. And out of nowhere, we're not given the name, but a Hellenist Jew comes out and says, well, I'll do it. I'll kill this pig. And before he can kill the pig, Mattathias screams blasphemy, rushes him, takes this knife and kills this Jewish guy and kills Apelles. And then he says, "If anybody who is zealous for the Torah and the commandments of God, follow me. And the whole village pounces on these soldiers and they kill them all. And then they take their weapons, and now they're like realizing like what's what's going on. But they ended up what what they end up doing is staging this revolt that goes for three years, and thousands of people flock to them. And in this now these are these are not soldiers; these are they're shepherds, and they're you know they are masons and they're carpenters and they're, they're they're potters and they're priests and they're scribes. None of these people have any experience, and they're taking on a superpower. They're taking on professional soldiers that have decades of experience, these, these soldiers, and they keep winning. It's, it's just incredible. Um, the, fir- the first, uh, and, and Mattathias is, is uh, second youngest son, Judah, becomes uh, the, the leader, the general. And the first army they encounter, there's 600 of these Jews, and they become known as the Maccabees. Judah Maccabi, or <clears throat> Maccabi, means like to hit with the force of a hammer, or to be like a hammer that hits. And there's 600 of them, and they take on 2,500 and just wipe them all out. 2,500 Seleucids. So then a second army comes, 4,000. Well, now Judah has 1,000. Wipe them all out. And then and it's just incredible. And by the, the fourth time, the fourth army they defeat is 40,000. And they have just under 10,000 men. And Judah wipes them all out. And they walk in, and they take Jerusalem, and they cleanse the temple it says they have to they take apart the altar because it it it, it, it had been just profaned and they rebuild a new one and they and all of these men like judah uh his father's a priest so that means all his sons are priests but they've been killing people they've been fighting in war so all of these and that's the interesting thing is it's like all these people it's like their birthright dies with the rebellion it's like they can't even fulfill what their birthright is so they have to find priests that have not killed Mm-hmm. And they find all of these priests and they cleanse the temple. They scrub it. They clean it. And it had been just left in disarray. And that's the interesting thing is the temple is dedicated to Zeus, but nobody was using it for three years. Thistles and briars and different altars were had been built there. And there's blood stains and all this. Nobody was using it. And that's kind of the thing. It's like when Satan takes over, you know, to destroy. And he just, he really doesn't care. And so they cleanse the whole thing and they dedicate it to the God of Israel. And they capture the city. And battles continue during the years. And um, Simon, the youngest, ends up becoming uh, really the high priest. Because the Maccabees didn't have a king. They would have a high priest uh, because God is king. And the high priest would act as a spiritual and more of a political advisor as well. But this ushers in a period that we know of uh, about 100 years of Jewish independence. Called the Hasmonean period. But this also is the story of Hanukkah. Because when they capture the temple and they dedicate it, the, to dedicate it, they have to light the menorah, the seven branch. Now this is, is, has nine, um, but uh, uh, the menorah has seven candles or seven places for the oil. And um, they only find enough oil for one day. But the, the, the whole thing is that this, this flame represents God. It's, it burns 24-7. So they light it in faith and it burns miraculously for eight days. And so, so even rabbis will say, it wasn't in the battles that that was the miracle. It's in this, the miracle of oil. That, because the, the battles were still something where, even though they were hugely outnumbered, someone could still say, well, maybe we were just, we got the best of them. Or we are just really good fighters. We know the land. You know, but here, this is the confirmation is this is not any work by man. This is God. And so we have this hundred years of of of, of a period after Hanukkah, and I put this this chapter down, and you can write this down because I'm I'm going to paraphrase it. But when I love saying to people, "Did you know that Jesus celebrated Hanukkah?" And people have no idea. Most people have no idea. Well, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Well, it's this in John ten twenty two to thirty nine that it says the winter feast. There's the time of the winter feast. Well, that's Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the festival of dedication. Okay? And um, Jesus is at the temple. Jesus is a good Jew. I mean, he's a good rabbi. He's an orthodox Jew, really. You know, he's fully God, fully man, but he came to his people as one of his people. And he, we know he went to the feasts. I mean, even the Last Supper is Passover. He's being there because he's a faithful Jew. Mm-hmm. And the, the Torah commands uh, all Jewish males, to observe to go up to Jerusalem to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover the feast of weeks and Sukkot the feast of tabernacles it says it so Jesus of course he's he's obedient to the, the word of God so he goes and um but here you know as we don't see Hanukkah as a commandment in in the feasts when we look in like Leviticus and Deuteronomy but Hanukkah was added and we see Jesus celebrating it so this was something that the people of Israel had recognized God's miraculous hand in salvation, in saving them from a power that really wanted to eradicate God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, eradicate the word of God from this world. If if Antiochus Epiphanes had been successful, we would all be pagans, really. You know, if he'd been completely successful, we would all be a bunch of pagans. There would that it would have ended there, but God will not. Stand for that. So we see Jesus. So when you know the story of Hanukkah, you, then you will know what's going on here in John chapter 10. Because what happens is he go, he's going up to the temple and he's surrounded by people who ask him, who, he, who are you? Now Hanukkah, when Apelles desecrated the temple, because the Jewish months, the Hebrew calendar is different than our calendar, which is a Gregorian. So the Hebrew calendar, it was the 25th day of Keslav in 167 BC. And then three years later, This is my book right here, if anybody wants it. (laughs) Um, Three years later, these are historical fiction novels. Three years later, the Maccabees capture the temple. And when they light the menorah, it's on the 25th of Kislev again. It's three, exactly three years to the day, from when it was desecrated to when it was cleansed. So then we have Jesus going up there on the 25th of Kislev. John 10 doesn't tell us it's the 25th of Kislev, but he is there on the 25th of Kislev. If you know what, about Hanukkah and how Jews celebrate it, it's definitely the 25th of Slav. So Jesus is there and he's surrounded by these people who ask him, who are you? They, and he makes this reference to being divine. He is not only just the Messiah, he is divine. And there's, there's two differences there, and we'll go through that later. Yeah. That there is the, a messianic concept, but then there's divine, right? Because every king of Judea, from Solomon, sorry, from Saul, David, Solomon, every king of Judea was anointed by oil. And a Mashiach, a Messiah, is an anointed one. He is anointed by oil. So theoretically, every king of Judah was a type of anointed one. So, but being a type of anointed one doesn't mean you are actually divine in the flesh, of course. So, uh, so Jesus was the ultimate anointed one. That's the thing. So Jesus is there. And he, he makes a statement about him being God. And the people try, like, rise up to try to kill him. It's like they won't see it, take any of this. Well, so when you understand the, the history behind Hanukkah... Is that almost 200 years earlier, a guy at that same spot, on that same day said, I'm God, and put his image in the temple. Jesus then, 200 years later, is there on that same day, in the temple, and he says, I'm God. So then it's like this natural inclination of people, there's no way we're going to let this happen again. Let's get him. So when you kind of unravel the mindset, Hanukkah is all about um, the folly of uh, of someone trying to take the place of God and say, I am God. Like, that's like blasphemy. That's like just, That just shows the lawlessness. And it's, and, and it's ultimately somebody saying, I am God, but they're also anti-God. But, and so that's true with anybody except for Jesus, of course. So Jesus is standing there. If it had been anybody else, those people would have been in the right. <laughs> if anybody else had stood there saying, I am God, they, you know, he would have been a nutter. But Jesus is in the right. And, um, and so that's an, an interesting thing as a side note. So the, 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 the land is divided up um, and it's, it's conquered over a course of time and it's expanded. And under this Hasmonean independent Jewish kingdom. It's interesting that the Seleucids continued to threaten the Jewish kingdom. So the Jewish kingdom made an alliance with Rome. That's interesting. There was a period of time where the Jews were friends of Rome. So this is interesting, and it's also interesting that when Julius Caesar died, the the Jews of Rome sat shiva for him. Mm-hmm. They mourned for seven days because Julius Caesar was a huge friend to the Jews of Rome, so they loved him. So it's interesting at this point that the, um, um, the Maccabees, the the Hasmonians, came under the wing of Rome for protection, and the Seleucids just left them and backed off. The Seleucids would be destroyed, and they would uh, phase out and we replaced by the Parthians and the Romans. So this is just kind of showing you a little bit more of the conquest. And the other interesting side note, and you see it says Edumia, in the purple near the bottom. Edumia was conquered by the Maccabees, um, by their descendants. And there was one of the direct descendants from the offspring of Simon, the youngest of the, the brothers, was John Hyrcanus. And John Hyrcanus, he pushed down into Edumia, and they were there was Jews living there, but the Edumians were pagans. And the Adumians were threatening the Jew, the Jewish population there, um, threatening to genocide, wipe them all out. So John Hyrcanus conquered Adumia, and it's the only time in Jewish history where a Jew has given the option to non-Jews, convert to Judaism or die. It's the only time, ever. And the interesting thing is the Adumians converted to Judaism. And one of their direct descendants is King Herod, which is quite interesting. Herod was an Adumian. So it's, it's just like, kind of bites them, right? <laughs> Back. So this, the, the Roman Republic grows. This is uh, just showing it, it expands. And, um, it, in, in, we're not, and we're just going to zoom a little bit through this because I want to get to the, the, what the Jewish world was like in the time of Jesus in the first century. But we have the, the Romans themselves go through these growing pains of expansionism. And when they're a republic, a republic was as close as you can get to a, a democracy as we know it, right? Control was by the Senate. But we have these strong men coming up with these legions. And a number of them are like Crassus, Julius Caesar, and Pompey. And Pompey is the one who ends up conquering the land of Israel in 63 BC. So about 100 years. Because the, Ma- the Maccabees or the Hasmoneans are having a civil war. And so Pompey goes in, shuts down the civil war, and then he just decides, you know what, we'll just annex this. (laughs) It's incredible, I mean, (laughs) like, you know, kind of like Putin maybe, right? Like, kind of with Ukraine maybe? So he just is like, you know, this is pretty nice, I'll just keep it, kind of thing. And he uh, elects his own kings, which Herod is one of them, these client kings because um, Herod plays both sides. He's like the Jew when he wants to, and he's like the complete peg and when he wants to at the other end of the of uh, the, the, the stick. Um, but these three, Julius Caesar being in the middle, Pompey being right here, and Crassus on the end, it's just too much for them. And they, they have a civil war. Pompey gets killed. Crassus is just a spoiled, rotten, rich, rich kid. A, probably if he was alive today, they say his wealth back then was greater than anybody today. He would have dwarfed Bill Gates by like four or five times. But he had like hardly any military experience, but he's like a spoiled little rich kid. All he wanted was a triumph. You know, and why should Caesar get a triumph and Pompey get a triumph and I I don't get a triumph. And he crushes the Spartacus slave revolt, but they don't give him a triumph because they're like, well, those were slaves. So he can never win. So he goes off to Parthia and loses his head, literally. Um, And uh, so Julius Caesar comes on top, but before he can really become, uh, you know, the one and only dictator... Brutus um, and a mob uh, murder him, of course. Then power is dispensed into a they, let's try this again. A uh, second triumvirate where they have these key people controlling power because the Senate's completely paranoid that if one person take power, like then the Republic will be dashed uh, to pieces. What they didn't realize is that it was already dashed to pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, the two ones, uh, Octavian in the middle. And Mark Antony, in the end, those are the two when Lepidus falls out. But those two guys end up having this uneasy truce. Mark Antony falls in love with Cleopatra. She poisons his mind like, oh, you could definitely take out Octavian. He he stages a revolt. Uh, Augustus flies in there. He doesn't fly, but he (laughs) destroys um, uh, Mark Antony at the Battle of Actium. And Antony and Cleopatra both commit suicide. So that's how you get to... Just Augustus. Now this is officially Imperial Rome. he becomes like dictator for life. and that was the thing is the, the role of dictator was supposed to be in a national emergency, someone would declare dip, be a dictator elected, and they would hold that position for one year and then give power back to the people. so the, but the last person who took it and never gave it back was Caesar. <laughs> so so it's like, I think I like this, you know it's kind of like the whole Pompey taking Israel. you know, I think I like this, I'll keep it. And uh, Herod the Great, I'm not going to go too much into him, but he was uh, buddy-buddy with uh, Octavian. This is how I can <laughs> make it really relaxed history, right? Buddy-buddy. He was buddy-buddy with Octavian. I mean, sorry, Antony. But when Antony was an, an, became an enemy of uh, uh, Augustus and then died and killed himself, Herod basically came crawling to Augustus, gave him gifts, and Augustus forgave him. And that's how Herod the Great... Continued. Otherwise, he would have just had his, lost his head. And Herod does incredible building projects that affect us when we get to the Gospels. Herod himself affects us when we get to the Gospels because he tries to the Nativity story. He tries to kill. He kills all the babies in Bethlehem. These two years and under. And he's at that point. He's near the end of his life. He's nuts. And he. I mean, they said it was better to be his dog than his own son because he kills half of. He kills most of his wives. He kills most of his his own uh, you know uh, children. But he's a master builder and he builds palaces all over the place, Caesarea where Paul was held in prison. He builds Masada, the fortress of Masada. He builds Jericho, a massive uh, uh, palace at Jericho. He builds the temple, well he renovates it, beautifies it. And he actually created an artificial mountain. He extended the mountain, it's incredible. And he also um, built a man-made mountain outside of Jerusalem called Herodium, which was a fortress in itself and he was later buried there. but this is the expansionist empire where, where we find ourselves when we arrive in the Gospels. This is the, uh, you know, living under the, the Romans was not nice. The Romans, however, did excuse um, the, practi- uh, the practice of, and they, they excused and respected uh, religions prior to, that had existed prior to them coming in. And they also made exception with the Jews because the Jews would not. Um, worship or uh, pay any attention to deification of emperors. That's hogwash. And they, you know, against graven images. Like these, those kinds of things spit right in the face of anything Hellenism because Hellenism always has graven images. Hellenism worships all these kinds of gods. But the Romans actually, interestingly enough, respected the Jews to a degree. And they uh, said, well, okay, as long as the Jews offer a sacrifice of goodwill, on behalf of the emperor. Not to the emperor, but on behalf of the emperor. Basically, they offer a sacrifice and say a prayer, you know, God, keep the emperor in good health kind of thing. And maybe something else behind a little whisper. But, um, and, and the Romans are fine with that because that, that shows to them that they're uh, honorable, but they're also going to play ball the way the Romans want. Um, once Augustus takes power, we, you've probably heard of the Latin phrase Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, right? There's a period, kind of a golden era, of, of Roman rule. And um, it's during this time that we find uh, Jesus. But we wanna, I want to turn slightly to understanding 1st century Judaism. Because 1st century Judaism was di- slightly different, and it had changed uh, to from the time of Moses in some ways. And all of this is pertinent and to, um, to when you're reading the Gospels, when you're walking through this. Because once again, like my illustration right at the very beginning... The Gospels are were not written to explain in depth Jewish customs and culture and how they think and what all of the and symbolism and meanings and all this. You know, they just say Pharisees, and then it's like they expect the person reading it will know exactly what a Pharisee is. They tell you what this, what is a scribe, what is this, what is it? It even says often, you know, when Jesus blesses the children, it just says he lays his hand he laid his hand on them and blessed them. That's all it says. But a first century Jew would know exactly what he blessed them with and what that was all about. He did the Aaronic blessing over them. And he laid, because you lay your hands and he recited the Aaronic blessing over the children, which was a common practice in the first century and actually brought into the home that every parent and every respectable teacher, that was always an opening blessing uh, for children. In fact, even today, every single Sabbath, the, the father will lay his hands on his children, may, God bless you and protect you and shine his face upon you and lift up his countenance and then may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh. And, he, and they lay their hands on them and they'll lay their hands on the, the, the their daughters and then lay their hands on the, the wife and recite Proverbs 31, the virtuous wife, the woman. And so the, all of these things, when you understand them, well then all of a sudden, when you come across that and Jesus laid his hands on the children, flipped the numbers, there's the Aaronic blessing. That's what he prayed over them. It's pretty amazing. Or... He broke the bread and blessed it. Uh, well, what, did he, what did he say? I can tell you what he said. Right? He said, Blessed are you, Lord, God, King of the universe, gives us the bread of the earth. He said it in Hebrew, though, not in English. But, but that's what he said because that's the blessing. And Jews have been doing that for thousands of years. That hasn't changed. But, so this is essential because this will uh, hopefully equip you in a unique way when you begin uh, reading um, the Gospels. And you, and you read the scriptures, because this is the embodiment of scriptures, and how and the world of Jesus. So Jewish faith, like it's it's interesting. Today we say Judaism is this right there, and if you go b- beneath Judaism, you'll say Reform Judaism, Conservative Juda- Judaism, Modern Orthodox, Ultra Orthodox, and there's and that's Judaism. And if you're a Jew, you're part of the Jewish faith, this the religion of Judaism. That's how people and books and stuff will describe it. But Jews back then never dis- would have. If you went back two thousand years ago and said, oh, "Oh, you're Jewish, so your your religion is Judaism," they'd be like, "What? What are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense." They didn't see themselves as this collective religion. They saw it as a Jewish faith. This is a life, and there's core principles we all agree with, and then there's a bunch of stuff we argue about.
3: <laughs>
1: right? It's I mean, it's like two Jews, four opinions. It's like it's that, and that's and that, but in a very healthy way. They're not arguing because they're challenging truth. They're arguing to understand truth, and um, and so they they, they saw themselves as part of this community of of faith. Uh, You know, I'm I'm a Jewish person, part of the, uh, and that's it. I'm uh, you know I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not part of Judaism. I'm not Reformed. I'm not conservative. What what is all of that? Like that wouldn't even make any sense. So we have to take what we know even about the Jewish people today. The Jewish people today are not the same Jewish people 2,000 years ago. There's a lot of similarities, of course, but there are some differences. One thing that had, what came up prior to Jesus, and a lot of what I'm going to be talking about is prior to him. Um, so one thing that came up prior to him was this concept of fence around the Torah. This description of building a hedge. So... And, and we do that, you know, in our own way too. Like, you know, you don't want to stumble out of this. You know, we build, a, what, maybe some, what are some ways that we could build a, a hedge of, of protection to make sure that we don't pollute this, right? We, we bring up things or maybe we lay fences or guidelines or, or maybe rules or certain things. And once again, I'm not talking legalistically here, but we, we place things so that, you know, we don't stumble in, or we don't pollute this or we don't water it down or compromise this or allow external things that will do all of those things and water it down. We we defend this. We protect it because we love it. We love God. We love His Word. Well, the Jews are the same. They built a, a fence around the Torah because when you don't have a fence, what happens? It's easy to allow all kinds of things in. And the Jews at this time are looking back. Oh my goodness, look at the Assyrians. Look at the Babylonians. Look at the golden calf. Look at all of this stuff this is what happens when you compromise this is what happens when we allow external things that have no business here to affect us and to change interpretation or to neglect look at Hanukkah you have Jewish priests eating pork and worshiping Zeus like that's like that's just it's complete hogwash right that's yeah, exactly. Hey, that was good. Um, you do not, don't edit that out. That was good. Um, anyway. Finally,
0: after 10 years of knowing you,
1: have a good one. Yeah. So they build a fence around the Torah. <laughs> They're going to protect. And, and w- when you want to protect something, you have to, it's all or nothing. You have to, like, all guns a-blazing. Anything that threatens it, you have to protect it. And so th- this concept of a fence around the Torah is very pertinent and very strong in a, in a, leading up to the century before Jesus. The, these concepts begin to really resonate among the people. There's always been an oral Torah. Not many people know that. This is, and, and I'm speaking, this is how Jewish people, right? So uh, the Jewish idea of the oral Torah was at Sinai, God gave the written Torah, and then he told Moses orally how to keep it, basically, the instructions. And that was passed down. And it's interesting that the, all of this stuff predates, way, way, way predates um, uh, Jesus. Um, the oral Torah was finally written into a written form three centuries after Jesus, but it was, had been orally kept for hundreds and hundreds of years. So some of what Jesus talks about and some of his examples, um, when he's talking with teachers, he's talking with the oral Torah. Some of the things that he talks about That's what he's referencing to. And we can see that... um, Now, a lot of Jews believe the oral Torah was inspired. Um, Jesus defends the oral Torah at times, but then he also has a problem with it at times when it's placed over the Word of God. So Jesus is is like a purist. He's like, you know, traditions are okay. And some of these commandments are fine with the oral Torah, but that is not the Word of God. And this is the Word of God. And we need to listen to it. And, and, he, and he's, that's, he, he's begging the community to come back to a pure form of biblical worship. Can you give an example of like where he would, an example of yeah. oral or Torah, which would not be written? Right. Um, the washing of the hands. Remember when, he, when he's walking and they're eating, and, and the, some Pharisees and scribes are like, you know, our sages say, you know, our scribes say, you, you should wash your hands. I see your disciples aren't washing your hands. The traditions of, you know, like, why aren't they o- obeying this? And, and so Jesus doesn't, you know, Jesus never comes out and says tradition is awful. And he, he certainly never even says the oral Torah is garbage. There's a lot of very good teachings in the oral Torah. But he has a problem when that is suppressed and pushed down and the word of God is buried. And so then he comes out and, and they have this argument, a debate. And when we look, we got to look at approach the gospels from this is a family debate. So for us, we're Gentile believers. But this is a family debate. They're all Jews arguing over theological matters and how to fulfill the word and how to live it. It's, it's, we're like on the outside coming in. They're in the inside. So it's very different when, when we do that. But that, that's a, an example. And he, and he never says hand-washing is terrible. But he has an issue because he, he can see their hypocrisy and he, he sees what this is all about. But at the same time, near the end of Paul's life, he... He, you can see right there, he says, I fulfilled all the traditions of my forefathers. So Paul, with admiration, connects these traditions as being a faithful Jew, and he's proud of it. So we we don't see a, a condemnation over traditions, or even the oral Torah, but we see these men, uh, Jesus and these the apostles and the disciples, were, are going towards a pure form. Look, what does the Word of God say? It's almost like, Okay, that yeah, that's fine, but what does the Word of God say? Let's you know, let's redirect this and like let's look at the Scriptures. And so that's one example. And we, and you know, often we know one thing about how Jesus isn't talking about the Oral Torah when he says, "As it is written." <laughs> it's like that was that was a you know they didn't have chapters and verses, you know, and actually in the original Torah scrolls they don't have chapters and verses. So. In the first century as it is written he's not going to say oh yeah um deuteronomy 6 verse 4 as it is written hero israel the lord is our god um the new testament didn't exist in in, in any it didn't even exist it, it, it was canonized in, in its completed form uh two almost three centuries after these things were written the gospels were written in his um the lifetimes of these disciples but they didn't all kind of come together as one until a long time after so the oral torah is, is an, a very interesting thing. And the, the value of looking, the oral Torah became what is called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is a commentary contained in the Talmud. Okay? So these are Jewish commentaries. These are Jewish uh, sources. Um, they're commentaries on scripture, but they're also commentaries on Jewish life. How to, do, how, to Jew, how to do Jewish life and how to be a faithful Jew. And what does this commandment really mean? Like, um, one interesting thing I had said to me years ago from a rabbi was this. And was this. If if you were given a commandment, a very simple commandment, let's say this. Do not work. Do not do work. Thou shalt not do any work on the Shabbat. And there's a few little examples. And then that's it. It's, it's not exhaustive. It doesn't really even tell you what is work in its full ramification. But then what is the... What's the consequence if you do work on the Shabbat? Death. Separation from the community and death is if you desecrate it. So can you imagine if somebody told you and had the authority, don't do this. And if you do it, you will die. But then they don't really tell you what in its full complexity that is. Well, what you would do like any human being in the face of the earth would do is create fences and other things. And you would be arguing for centuries. What is work? What is this? Is it like, is it going, is it, how far, you know, if you walk a distance, how far when you walk, does it become work? And of course there are Jewish people, and uh, as any human being, when you approach these kinds of things, Jewish people that become legalists, as anybody does, because it's like how we tick, humanly speaking, ritually, and laws and rules, it's just like something how we tick, especially when, when it's not in line with God and his word. But, um... You know, they ultimately create these things because they say God gave us this commandment, and I want to live my entire life not forsaking that commandment because it's, this is an expression of love from me to Him. So, it's, so one thing that Christians and Jews often miss is when Jew, when Christians look at the the at Jews, they say, "Well, you're a legalist. You're working for your faith. This is a burden. Mm-hmm. Become a Christian, and and you'll have the burden." Torn off because we're under grace, not under the law. And, um, but for the Jew, they, they, that they miss the point because they, they look at that and say, but this isn't a burden. My beloved has asked me to do this, and I am happy to do it and go the extra mile. That's literally like how the typical or average modern Orthodox Jew would think. I'm, this isn't a burden. I'm, I don't believe that I'll get to heaven because of my good works. I'll get to, I'll get to heaven because I love God with all my heart, soul, and strength. And I love my neighbor as, my, as myself. And I'll, I'll live my whole life serving the Lord. And heaven is the reward for that. That's how they, that's, that's how they think. Um, and there's a lot of truth in that. There's, there really is. So with it, it's, it's a very complex thing of how Jews... You can't just nail them down in, in the first century. Oh, this is what they all thought. No, it's absolutely not. You know, there's about 40,000 Christian denominations in the world. Like, so you can't even say Christian equals... That, no. There's like a million different Christians that would argue with those points and say, no, I don't believe that or that. You know, so you have all kinds of things. They're, they were a complex people. Um, the feasts of the Lord in Second Chronicles 8.13, the, the, the feasts of, often people say, oh, the Jewish feasts are the feasts of Israel. Well, Chronicles describes them, these are the feasts of the Lord and they're given at Sinai to Israel as these appointed times. Passover, um, Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, dwe- tabernacling with God. And it's amazing in John how it says the word came in tabernacled among us. So there's many people that think Jesus was most likely born during the time of Sukkot. Feast of tabernacles. And it, there's lots of imagery there. But the feasts of the Lord were still a central uh, aspect to the Jewish people in the first century. We see lots of that with, throughout the Gospels of Jesus being present for the feasts. Um, this is a, a little bit of a calendar wheel. So the inside shows the Gregorian months and the outside has the um, Hebrew months and then it tells you where the feasts are. So the, their, their feast was, it was a, uh, they were an agrarian society, um, still very much agrarian by the time of the first century, but for sure during Moses' time there were shepherds and farmers. That was what they were concerned, a, ma- a land flowing with milk and honey. They were concerned about The soil and what kind of weather is there and where they can grow. I mean, Abraham and Lot, right? The, where is the best land to pasture your sheep? These guys are a bunch of farmers and shepherds with a bunch of stinky sheep. And all of their feasts, it's incredible what God taught them through the feasts is the whole agricultural year. You know, you come to Feast of Weeks and it's like bringing your best. Well, that just, and offering it, burning it. It's like, that just sounds insane to like any like farmer in Alberta or Saskatchewan. It's like, can you imagine? Get it take, you take your prime crop, the best and then just like light it on fire and pray and thank God. like that just it, but that's it they would bring their best to God and 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 deliberately do that knowing that God a has commanded it but even though they do they give their best to God, he'll still provide for them It's like so every year there's a constant wheel of faith that these people are exercising. Because they're, they're doing what is, by human standards, kind of insane. Like why on earth, like food is absolutely important. Why would you give your best? Your best should be what you're living off of. Or at least selling to make profit. But why would you give your best? And, and like, so they're living by faith. All the feasts are appointed times, not when they feel like gathering, but they're appointed, they're given by God, it's a calendar given to a people saying, this is when you should meet with me, this is when I wanna meet with you, and I'm, and through these feasts, I'm gonna teach you that I am your beloved, like I am like married to you. And, and we, I, it's just an incredible thing. Um, and then the foreshadow of, of these feasts with Jesus is just immaculate, like it's just, it's concise. Um, but it's all around the time of planting, harvesting, and, and, and the, the whole cycle of, of the crop here. Mm-hmm. Um, we also begin to get into a time, a period of sages and rabbis. This is different now from Moses' time, um, where you begin to get into a, a, a period where you have these mobile teachers um, rising up and, and taking disciples. Um, so Jesus didn't start this. Uh, this was going on centuries before. Um, uh, one of the most famous sages was Rabbi Hillel. It's quite possible that Jesus, even as a little boy, may have heard him speak. Rabbi Hillel operated in the north. And many of the concepts that he talks about, Jesus expounds on. It, it, like to a T. Even the concept of being the light of the world. Like the kingdom of heaven. Rabbi Hillel was very concerned with the, the kingdom of heaven. But there was these two schools to point out. Um, there was hundreds of schools, but two big schools, Hallel and Shammai. And Shammai is very, was more conservative, and Hallel a little bit more liberal. And it's amazing that when some of Jesus' actions and what he calls for, um, you know, when us teaches how to pray or the rich man coming up, like, what should I do? And, and you can actually see Jesus um, at times in the Gospels kind of quoting or aligning himself with Shammai and Hallel. Like his responses can be found in both of those schools, which Jesus would have been educated. He would have known about them. They predate him. And then the the amazing thing that Jesus does is he teaches with his own authority. You remember, it says a number of times in the Gospels, the crowds were amazed because he spoke with a man who had authority. What does that mean? Well, all the Jews back then would always quote people. That was like a very Jewish thing. Rabbi such and such has said this. Rabbi such and such has said that. And then they might take those things and kind of, but I say this. But they're quoting. Well, Jesus never did that. So that's why these people are amazed. He's like going completely against the norm, against the grain. He's speaking as if he's one with authority, as because he's the source. Right? He's the word. And it's like the word became flesh. He doesn't have to have a bibliography. He quotes himself. <laughs> it's like that's the amazing thing. So he's, ama- he's blowing the minds of these Jewish people because they've never seen a teacher like this. Because every single teacher, that was how they showed their credibility. Every single teacher would sit, would align himself with different rabbis and teach their stuff. And it could be all good. But that was, that was what every single human being in the land of Judea, Samaria, Galilee, that is anybody who's Jewish, that's what they know. That's what they've heard. They've seen it in the synagogues. They've seen it in the fields. They've seen it in the temple. They've seen it everywhere. That's for centuries, that's what, all they've known. And then here comes this man and he doesn't quote anyone. He's just like, bing, bing, bing. And he's backing it up by healing lepers and doing all this crazy stuff. And people are like, just, this is amazing. And so it's, it's a really exciting time. So we have, um, the Jewish people have become very concerned with certain issues, the very biblically uh, concerned issues. But at the time of the first century, we're, this is following the exiles in history the influence of Hellenism and then the first so the Seleucids and now Rome and they find themselves with these you know there were still Hellenized Jews that loved the Romans and mo- and lots of Jews that just tried to keep their head down and do their own thing and then lots of Jews who just hated them uh, because the Romans would look for any opportunity The I mean the, as you go along any opportunity to embarrass blaspheme the name of God uh, just just Abuse and violate and do whatever they wanted. And if you know if you were considered anything, crucifying and flogging and just just awful. It, would, it really would have been, I mean, it a tyrannical despot to live under the Romans. And but you have with all of this growing movements that are concerned with things, prayer, study, and fasting. These become really, really con, uh, strong um, movements. Of, uh, and appeals within the Jewish world. Let's get back to prayer. Let's get back to study. We need to fast. We need to repent. Messiah is going to come. And these, these uh, become things. That's why when we look through like the Gospels, we, we, you just see it. And um, some of the questions posed to Jesus. I love the one where the disciples of John and disciples of some of these Pharisees come there when Jesus is having dinner and they're and they're talking about and they they're about prayer and repentance and fasting. Like they're and, and they don't come there to like trap him. They're asking him honest questions. And and he responds about, "Well, we're, this is why we're eating because the bridegroom is here." And um and so he doesn't like shoot them down. He just says, "Look, I'm the bridegroom. Maybe, you know, these are good things, but there's other very important things, more important because the bridegroom is looking right at you." And this is my paraphrase, but really, this is what he's getting to. There will be a time to fast and pray when the bridegroom is taken. Mm-hmm. So um, the Amida, the Aaronic blessing, the Amida was a, was a liturgical Jewish prayer and that um, would cover like mm-hmm. your day, basically. And it's amazing when the disciples say, Lord, teach us how to pray. These aren't ignorant people. They know how to pray. So what's happening here? They, I mean, these guys all grow up. Most of these disciples would have known huge swaths of the, of the, of the Torah, the, the Tanakh off by, like, by heart. They could have just quoted it, quoted it. Like, look at Jesus. Yes, he's the son of God and you can quote all of this stuff, but that was a very rabbinic thing too. If you were a rabbi, more than likely, you would know the first five books by memory and most of the rest of the Old Testament by memory. You would just, so as it is written, they're not like looking up on their iPhone or going to a library to look in their commentaries. They know this stuff. So what's happening there? The disciples would say, teach us how to pray. Well, this is understanding the Hebraic context, was that all different rabbis would always teach their disciples a prayer written by them or, or said by them. So when they come to them, they're saying, Jesus, what is your prayer that you would teach us? And then our Father who art in heaven. And that, it's incredible because the Lord's prayer, as we call it, all the points of the Lord's prayer are found in the Amidah. All of them. It's the, the Lord's Prayer is is like a summary of the Amida. So the Amida Prayer is like a big, long prayer. And then Jesus takes all the, the important points of the entire Amida. So what's that saying? He's validating the Amida. The Amida is a good prayer. But then he's saying, this is the core. This is the meat and potatoes. This is what I want you to pray. And that's the prayer he gives to his disciples. And... um. The Jewish, Jewish Talmudim. That's a fancy way of saying the Jewish disciples. Um, Talmudim is a, is a, is a uh, one who studies, one who follows. When we think of disciples, this is what we think of. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't think I could li- live up to any of their expectations because I have never had a halo around my head or looked like that um, with a strange, ungodded, ungodded uh, face. But... What I'm trying to do is put flesh on these bones. When we read the Gospels and when we attend many, many churches, this is what most people think of when they, the disciples, the apostles, like these incredible, almost sinless men. And this is probably more realistic. Hairy, dirty, and stinky men who, you know, yes, they're washing. I mean, they're they're definitely, they would smell better than your uh, medieval European... Men, but um, these guys were bathing uh, quite regularly. But still, they, they would have worn old clothes. they you know they, they sweat, and I, if you've ever been to Israel, I mean, or any place in a desert, like you get pretty stinky and uh, dirty and dusty. But what a Talmudim really was to summarize the whole uh, the whole concept of being a disciple, it's this: one who follows in the dust. One who follows in the dust. If you follow in the dust, that means you are not impo- as important as the one you're following. Like, if you're eating dust, you know, it's like, you, it's like if you ever, uh, when you were young, had a pedal bike with your buddies and you're at the front and on a, like mm-hmm. a dirt road, that's where you want to be. Like, the worst place is at the back. Even if you're driving in your car, like, I'll put shut off the uh, the outside air, right? And circulate it because you get the dust coming through. That's not a place. But for a disciple, man, you, like, stick your tongue out and eat that dust. You want to, you know, you want to be one who walks in the dust. These are some modern pictures of disciples, Jewish disciples. So these are, these are ultra-Orthodox Jews, and these two men right here are, the, the, are two rabbis, and, and it's incredible. I've seen this with my own eyes. It's like they'll follow them. They'll, they'll hold their hands. When they come and greet their rabbi, they'll kiss their hand. They'll help them everywhere. They'll go get anything for the rabbi. Because when, see, back in the first century, you could not join. You don't, you don't like, go and apply to become a disciple. Um, you don't go to a, a school and fill out an application and talk with the registrar. You have to be called. If you're not called, you'll never be a disciple. Mm. A disciple back then was always one who was called. They—that's why you find the disciples; they're, they're just doing their fish. They're not like going out and like with like surveys and trying mm-hmm. to like run out to every rabbi. They're just out working, and Jesus calls everyone. I mean, it says it right in the text. He's called, come follow me. He's calling them. He even calls other people that say, "Oh, I don't have time for you," or "I got to go do this." And then his comment—you know—the dead let the dead bury the dead. Um, but oh, wouldn't that good comment "many are called, fewer chosen" is that would that have relation to this sort of yeah, sense? Yeah, because yeah, a, a, a rabbi never wanted many disciples. Yeah. It was always a core group, and in, there are some scholars that say it's it's interesting. But there are some scholars that say in the first century that core group was around twelve, mm. that was like considered like a prime because they were all mobile. But it was there was a payment transaction here. Basically, it was a rabbi calling, and, if, and he would only call you if he saw something in you. Now, Jesus sees the heart, because guess what? Because no rabbi in the right mind would call a tax collector. Like my goodness, you're inviting like that. That guy's like buddy buddy with the Romans, and he like rips off everybody. Like that's what he's known for, right? So Jesus sees the heart, though. But um, there's a transaction here. It's like if I call you and you and you come. You only get one, ch- one time. You, you, can't, you can't say, oh, I got to go do this or that, or you know, I'll join you in six months from now. You respond to that call. If you respond to that call in payment because of receiving the teachings of your rabbi, you look after your rabbi. That is your number one responsibility. Where is he going to sleep? Where is he going to rest? Where, and where is he going uh, to get his food? That's why the disciples are like running around constantly and, uh, and trying to protect Jesus. And keep the crowds away and they're always concerned with food and sleeping like like where is it? that's what they're supposed to do so they're not always trying to be mean like when they're like hey you know the master is done he's up to here like they're not trying to be mean that's their job if and they can't fail that job and then it, with the disciples there's always a primary disciple there's a senior disciple among the group and he usually answers questions first and he would usually take over that when the rabbi died, he would take over as a direct, um, basically, descent or teacher and um, and uh, the rabbi's ministry. Who do you think that was? Pardon? Peter. Peter. So Peter's a primary disciple. That's often why he replies first. He's expected to. He's not just flapping his tongue. He's supposed to. And the, all the other disciples would look to him when he would speak. And... and it's, it's an amazing thing that out of all of the disciples, it's him, right? On this rock, you will build my church. It's like this unique uh, reinstatement of, of mm-hmm. Peter and this declaration of who Peter is. Um, here's some other pictures of uh, how Jews study. Or here in the top um, left, they're consulting the rabbi. So it's just an incredible thing. What You can see a modern 21st century version of the first century. In, in so many ways. And like look at the age of these kids. They're like. And how they read scripture. And he's holding on to the, the tassel. Which on the, the hem of the garment. And like right from a little age. They're like they. You know all my bones will praise you. They. They're fully committed. Um, in, the, in their worship. And they. They don't just read the text. They sing it. It's like they chant it. It's, it's quite incredible. And sometimes, when it gets too much for you, you just crash. Um, but you know, like, but everything is is everything that the that the Jews would have were outward symbols to represent their faith and reminders. And I mean, so the tassels were commanded in Scripture that all men, males, should have these tassels. The tassels would have eight knots with six hundred, uh, rep- and all of them combined represent the six hundred and thirteen commandments in Mo- of Moses. The blessings and the curses. Um, but they would wear them on the corners of the garment. And every time you would see those, like look at the little boy here, he's holding it. Every time you would see those, you would know I'm a follower of the God of the Bible. I am, I am part of the covenant of Israel. I, th- this is commanded of me. There's a modern picture of uh, a Jewish man wearing them under the shirt. Um, the mezuzah, uh, you know, have, have them on, on either the doorposts of your house. You know, fix, uh, have them as frontlets on, between your eyes. These commands. And the Jews look at those and they take them literally. Okay, I'll have it on the doorpost. So on the doorpost they have this scripture. Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, 11, 13-21. Written on a tiny little scroll and rolled up and put into a mezuzah box. And so whenever they walk into their house, mm-hmm. they'll kiss it. And many of them will recite it. And it's it's this, this you're, you can't get away from it. Your life is saturated but the Word of God. There's a little picture that blown up. The this, this scroll's about the size of a cue card. And that's inside the box. as frontlets between your eyes. <laughs> so this is the tefillin. They'll wear, and three times a day, they'll wrap tefillin. A boy, when he turns 13 years old, when he has bar mitzvah, that's when he gets his first tefillin set. And the tefillin has the five senses. So the box on the, the, he, uh, the head has four, and then the the box on the the arm has one slot. They have these, so five slots, and they have the the, the little scrolls, the parchment, put into the all, each one. So they wrap the tefillin, and when and they wrap it seven times around their arm, and then they wrap around their, their hand is a sheen. The W, the the W, um, oh, you can't see it. It's this, that letter right there. Mm-hmm. So that's a sheen, and that represents El Shaddai the name one of the names of God and so on their actual hand see there's the sheen so it's a W so it's wrapped a certain way seven times the number of perfection and unity and then wrapped as a sheen around their hand and that's how religious Jews will pray every day and they'll put that on fulfilling the the mitzvah of uh, the good deed or the, the, the commandment the righteous commandment of having it as frontless between your eyes um, I had an amazing opportunity to meet a scribe, to, to hear, to see his writing, but to also to hear him read it and how he recites it. But he made his ink the ancient way from like, this is like, you need these ingredients to make the, the ink that he needs. So it's charcoal, pomegranates, a, a resin sap, and then this, um, and so the, the black gives it the, the, the color, the pomegranate helps stain it, and the resin protects the ink and they, they make this concoction and um, they still do it by hand and it takes a scribe a year to, to write out a scroll it's incredible that and they count every letter and they'll sing it back and they'll have and they have would usually have other scribes um, uh, you know going through this and it's amazing that every Pharisee was a scribe but not every scribe was a Pharisee so when Jesus, is encountering these men hypocrite or not because many of them weren't hypocrites but when he's encountering these men these men would have all written at least one scroll in their life so these are these, so that's what maybe what drives Jesus even more bonkers at times with some of these guys is you've written your own scroll you, you you're supposed to know this stuff um, so it just shows you that you know just even writing a scroll doesn't well, Always change your heart. Mm-hmm. So this is a close-up of the tefillin. So see the slots inside, and then there's the one for the arm. And there's a this guy's a Yemenite scribe who has his family's been there have been scribes for 400 years. So he and and all by hand. It's incredible. So he was writing out a passage, and here's a scroll, of course. And, when, and I have a little he writing them for like he's writing it up for what yeah. purpose they, they sell them okay. so synagogues all over the world would need one of these it's like a commentary well this is the this is the the, the bible this oh. is the scripture so they'll all have them in, and they'll, they'll have Torah scrolls and uh, for the the prophet books and all that they'll have individuals so they have these massive scrolls um, that it'll take a year to write like a Torah scroll and um, every synagogue in the world will need <coughs> one of these and so these tourists, so they're always doing them because Torah scrolls wear out. But you never throw out a Torah scroll. What they do is actually a burial ceremony. They wrap them in a prayer shawl and bury it. So, um, which is incredible because they found these when they unearthed also at Qumran. So they found all these stuff in the caves, but they also found buried scrolls, uh, which were I- incredible. But um, no, one of these scrolls will go from anywhere from fifty to hundred thousand dollars U.S. Yeah. Well, I think. I mean, it. it's yeah. So listen. Yeah. though. But it's still, hundred grand, six figures. Yeah. Without yeah, tax. Yeah, 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 yeah. Without tax. <laughs> Payday comes at the end, but then hey, you're good. So. Should be carbon neutral. Yeah, no carbon
2: tax on this. Um, <laughs> no, it's, 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 okay, listen to this. So he's singing it. This is. He's reading the commandments. He said, Almost in Yeshua, salvation. It's Jesus. Okay.
1: Okay, and he's not making this up. Like, his father would have taught him how to sing it. And his father would have taught him how to sing it, and his, they're, he's singing a song. He's not just putting in wherever he wants, you know. Like so, this is in a school. Now the, these were grade three, I think, two, and listen. So they're reading. They're reading portions from Exodus, um, and this is incredible. So this is how. Once again, you Jesus. Like when you think of Jesus as a boy, these, these traditions, tradition. Has been going on for thousands and thousands. This would have been, remember when we read in the Torah and Moses is, and Joshua, they you know, meditate on this day and night, teach your children and your children's and your children's, like, and he's talking about, that's what he, this is what he's talking about. Teach them the word of God. So listen to this. These, these are the kids
2: singing. And they do this
1: every day.
3: That's the teacher.
1: Isn't that cool? So they're all singing the same. So they're singing the scriptures. And uh, I think that's just phenomenal. Um, so th- these are the, these are some pictures of the bar, a bar mitzvah there, a 13-year-old boy. And he's carrying an ark. Inside that is a scroll, the Torah scroll. So that's what he's carrying. Um, here, these men are at the western wall, the kotel, which is the retaining wall to the temple that they can go till today. Um, it's been a obvious. Uh, and so they all have th- the tallit, the prayer shawls. And, it, and this is amazing because, like, once again, all of this stuff is rooted and we find it in the Gospels. And, of course, we would because they're all Jews. And we know Jesus wore a talit. I mean, we see it even the woman with the issue of blood. Um, we look at the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that it talks about. Um, Mark, both Mark and Luke say she grabbed the, the hem, the, the fringe of, mm-hmm. his, of his mantle. Of his, what, what she's grabbing is the tzitzit, the tassel. Mm-hmm. So Jesus would have had, every time he prays, he would put it up, like this. Jesus would have wrapped the fill-in. Like, it's kind of like we get to, I mean, as outrageous as this sounds, some of these things would upset many Christians to know that Jesus was a Jew. It's, it's really, you know, I've met them. They just, nope, Jesus was, as if he had no ethnicity and no, it's like, okay. But, um, yeah. very white. Yeah, he didn't look like a Swede. Um, okay. Born in left. Yeah, the, son, the,
3: the picture of Jesus at Sunday school—he was—he looked like um,
0: David Beckham.
1: David Beckham. <laughs> David Beckham played football. And yeah, right. Yeah, but no, you're, that's absolutely true. The white Jesus. Yeah, and this the is the thing. Beard and you know, any, anybody can know Jesus in any nation in the world, and we don't have to know all of these exterior things to know him. But there is one Jesus, and he's coming back as... I, I said this, in a, This it was like spontaneous. I said he's coming back as the Lion of Judah, not the Lion of the Vatican, right? Like, he is a, the Jewish Messiah. He's coming back as a Jew, and that is his identity. And when we go out of our way to create him in our image or something else, that's not Jesus. He, is, he has an identity. As much as you value your own identity, he has an identity. And it's, he's Jewish. Um, I'll just go through a few things and then we'll wrap it up and have any questions. We did, I didn't think we'd get to the end of the Second Jewish Revolt, but that's fine. This is really what I wanted to uh, get into. But um, in the last number of years, I've become quite a defender of the Pharisees. Um, not a defender of the hypocrite, hypocritical Pharisees, but uh, the Pharisees in general. Because they're hugely misunderstood. And... Um, the Pharisees were, the, really their, their name, Pharisee, Prashim, comes from like separatists or pious ones. Um, the, and we're really introduced in the, in the scriptures to Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, um, sages. Like the, these are the, we, you know, there's, there was the Essenes, Zealots. These were some groups, and I'm going to quickly go through. But the Pharisees were seen as the defenders of the Torah. These men, if any one of you could go back in time 2,000 years ago and 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 then have a, have a, a kind of a kindred spirit moment with a Jew in the land like and as I talk about a kindred spirit moment like of the Bible like you can go back and talk faith talk about the scriptures and have so much in common they they would be the ones you'd have the most in common with the Pharisees so you would like like a god-fearing Pharisee you guys would be like you know Bees and carrots, as Forrest Gump would say, right? So you, you would really, like, you would connect with them. You guys would have so much to agree on. Um, you, you might agree on almost any everything. If you could go back 2,000 years, you, you know, what would you not agree on? But the Pharisees were defenders of the Torah. These men were concerned with repentance, prayer, and fasting. They were really concerned with, they saw sin and carelessness in the nation, and they wanted them to return To the roots of their faith. Bible-believing Jews. That's what they wanted them. Um, Of course, some of them were hypocrites. But the Pharisees numbered between 6,000 to 8,000. In the (coughs) movement of the Pharisees. The Pharisees is like... your kind of your umbrella term. And under the Pharisees were hundreds of schools. So this group of So this group of Pharisees might not get along with that group in some issues. And they might clash and argue and stuff. But to be a Pharisee meant... You still believed in, believed in the, the key tenets of the faith. So Paul was a Pharisee. And he was a proud Pharisee. So they're not all bad. But in our society... I mean, if you Google Pharisee in dictionary.com, your primary meaning is like a hypocritical person to be Pharisaic. And, that's, and that word has been hijacked to be like, don't be such a Pharisee. Somebody says that to you, that's a put down. They're saying you're a hypocrite. You're false. Um, but that's not what these people were. These people... As a group, as a collective, were champions of the word of God. And they were very concerned at the spiritual state of the people. And um, so concerned that they were traveling missionaries. The Pharisees went all over the ancient world, spreading the gospel, so to speak. Uh, and planting synagogues all over the world. So when Paul is traveling on his missionary journeys, he ends up in synagogues all the time. And sometimes he even says, I'm a Pharisee. right? He like states who he is. That gives them credibility. People will listen to them because they respect the Pharisees. And and so these men were like incredible men. Yes, in their ranks, there were some hypocrites. And the Pharisees are hard on themselves. In the, in the, in the Talmud, the Talmud talks about seven types of a Pharisee. And the worst type, the type that they can't even stand, is the hypocrite. Like not, not the lazy Pharisee. What's even worse than that is a Pharisee who preaches something and doesn't even live it. So they, like, tear into their own people. Like, this is what we don't like. And so, of course, Jesus knows the heart, and he navigates through this. And we see some interesting things with the run-ins with the Pharisees. Sometimes they're very positive. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea is a Pharisee. They're believers. The Pharisees said, the Herodians are coming to kill you. Get out of here. Yeshua, you know, they helped save his life in a way. Like, get out of here. And... Um, and then we see Paul before the Sadducees and Acts. Sadducees and Pharisees, what is the first thing he says? It says he like looks and he knows who his audience is, so he makes a declaration about the resurrection. And he splits the whole assembly because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And instantly all the Pharisees then want to defend Paul. He's one of us. And they all like and it's it's amazing. That's like total like he just uses it. He just like throws the ember in the and poof, into the kindling and everything goes up. And he, but Paul, like, he knows exactly. And when he gives his great defense in Caesarea, he starts his defense with the resurrection. Which then is interesting because he, he says, Paul says, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Right? And Gamaliel was, in his day, was the leading rabbi and sage of his day. So Paul, Paul went to Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, and Yale, all combined into one. He had the best... Education of his day from the leading scholar and rabbi of his day and Paul says that not arrogantly but he says that and everybody listens up to him and I mean we see some incredible things I believe in the life of the disciples alone thousands of Pharisees would have became believers at Pentecost um, Acts talks about even uh, um, it says many of the Kohenim, many priests became believers in that day I think sometimes we forget about that. The early church wasn't these uneducated Galileans. There was many people from the Galilee, but there, was thou- there would have been thousands in the course of, by the time of Paul's death, thousands of educated Pharisees, maybe even some Sadducees that became believers in Jesus. So they, but they came from the Hasidim, the pious ones, and the Hasidim were the ones who fought with the Maccabees. So they were like defenders of the Torah that's who they were so the Pharisees goes right back and when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 there's my other book in, there's my plug in <laughs> 70 the only group of the Jewish um, uh, of, the, of the Jewish sects the only group that survived were the Pharisees so to modern rabbinic Judaism as we know it today is a direct descendant of the Pharisees and it's changed of course over time but the Pharisees were the ones who survived Am I right or wrong in the statement that the
0: reason why um, these guys didn't like the Maccabeans like it was because they set themselves up as kind of like kings and priests at the same time and they wanted the distinction between that? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, that would, yeah, that would be fair to say and um fair to say, oh that was close to Pharisee. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, that would... You're hanging on Kevin too much. Yeah, I am. I gotta, yeah, so the, the Pharisees, you know, the, the Pharisees had a, a many, many amazing things. And I, I honestly, when you, when you read about them, of course, the, the Gospels tell us when these Pharisees are, you know, mean, ill, intent, or not. You know, there's, there's, a, there's numerous times where there's nothing negative that is said in the, in the text when Jesus is encountering... And it, that was a completely normal thing to do. If you were from one school, to see another school, and let's go over there and try to trip them up or argue and see who's like, that, that. was just very Jewish. So they're not always when they come up to Jesus, doing it out of like this evil intent. Um, they're that, they're doing a completely Jewish thing. And look at Jesus's reactions um, at key times. And oftentimes, the church. One of the greatest. Um, one of the greatest mistakes the church does. In looking at the scriptures in the Gospels, is they make Jesus into a Christian pastor, hmm. talking to a bunch of rebellious Jews. Yeah, yeah, it's a movie, all movie. Right. Like, it's yeah. yeah. So that's that's one of the most damaging things that they do, because Jesus, um, you know, we don't have any proof that Jesus was a Pharisee, but why are all these Pharisees coming up to him to always engage him in conversation? Obviously, they saw him as a man of authority, and they they believe, there was mutual. Understanding uh, with the same issues, and they wanted his take. Meaning, they theologically were like related to him. Like, this, they, they jived with this. They saw his authority and they respected it. And they came, if, if somebody, like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, never had arguments, they didn't agree on, well, they didn't like each other at all. But they wouldn't go out of their way to try to learn from each other. The Sadducees, like, the Pharisees are separatists. That's what their name means. And the Sadducees are incredibly arrogant and handpicked by the Romans, and they don't even believe that the Tanakh. So everything from uh, so the first they only believe in the first five books as authoritative. The rest of Scripture isn't inspired. It has it has uh, it's um, it has uh, historical relevance. We can and some good points, but none of the prophets, none of that stuff is inspired. The Pharisees believed in the complete inerrancy of Scripture. And the, so Jesus, when he has, he has it run-ins with the Sadducees, he's, he's reaming them out for their careless use of scripture, even in their own text that they think is inspired. They don't even treat it properly when he has the whole thing with the wives. And, you know, like these seven men have all, all these wives and when they get to heaven, whose wife is she going to be? And, well, that's ridiculous because they don't even believe in the resurrection. So they're like setting up this question. But even in, in the Torah itself, And what Jesus responds with is, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he quotes from their text that they already believe is inspired. But he quotes that verse. When you look at that verse, he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. He talks about them as if they're still living. That verse, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're still alive. And that's why he says, then, God is the God of the living, not the dead. But we have numerous um, verses in and Daniel and Isaiah and others that talk about the resurrection being a real thing, like the resurrection of the dead is going to happen. But Jesus doesn't quote that because they don't even believe in it. So he uses their own stuff to show that they don't even believe in it. So it's it's, it's really interesting that we Jesus engages in these religious battles, these verbal jousts, with things that um, these people either appreciate and believe in or they don't. And he exposes often the hypocrisy or he just tells these people, think deeper. Or think from a different angle. Um, the Essenes were an apocalyptic group in the in the south. They believed they were the sons of light, and they were going to go and do war. The rest of the world, including most Jews, were all sons of darkness because they were all corrupt. And the Essenes were kind of they they were given like special revelation. And um, the Bible seems to hint that Jesus probably even knew some of these Essenes. Um, and it, it, there's some like little tiny clues. I'm not going to go into those, but there's some little clues that Jesus probably had run ins with some of them. Um, he, would, he definitely would have known what they uh, would believe. Uh, John the Baptist could have easily, because <clears throat> the Essenes were monastics, they were out in the desert. John's hanging out in the desert. You know, like that, it would be a very Jewish thing for the Essenes to hear about John and, hey, let's send some people over there to listen to him or learn from him and, mm-hmm. and kind of these kinds of things. And John is also talking about kind of apocalyptic things. You know, the Lamb's going to come, the kingdom repent now. And these kinds of issues would resonate with the Essenes who believed the end is coming soon. Um, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and they went south, the Essenes came out to meet them for war. With, and the Essenes had no weapons. They literally walked out there thinking God was going to send a thunderbolt and wipe out the legions. And the legions slaughtered every single one of the Essenes. But um, what happened before all the Essenes died is they hid all their scrolls. And, and that's why the scrolls stayed hidden for almost 2,000 years. It wasn't until 1947 that they, missed, by mistake, found all the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because the scenes were scribes. They wrote scrolls. That was what they did for a living. Um, but they also have, in, in, this, in, Jewish, in, in uh, the Jewish concept of, of these terms, these, um, once again, these are all Jewish concepts, Son of God, Son of Man. So, often t- many Christians, when they look at these two, they'll say, Well, Son of Man is Jesus' title and how he relates to humans. Because it's like Son of Man. Son of God is Jesus' title and how he relates to God. Because of basically the arrangement of the words. But by a Jewish understanding, that's the opposite though. So, it, Daniel 7 is the perfect example. The Son of Man is given power, right? Over the world he's by the ancient of days gives him power and he's going to come on the clouds well that's a that's in a jewish mindset that's not a a human doesn't do that that's divine (laughs) and a son of god like i mentioned at the beginning is one who's anointed so the son of god is one who relates to man (laughs) and a son of man is is man's relation to god through divinity it's like that's his role and so it's the opposite in the jewish mindset whereas often most churches in how they'll speak of those concepts, it's, it's flipped. But in the Jewish world, it's the opposite. And they get so close. and It's incredible how close, when you study Jewish texts, it's incredible how close they get to basically just underlining Jesus is the Messiah. Like it's, they just like dance around as close as you can get without, without that coming out. And this is what it says, because there's a possible contradiction... For Jews who don't believe, for Jews who believe in one coming, or the Messiah will come and kind of fulfill all of these things, which is is a, it was a, is a typical uh, Jewish response. Like we believe in two, right? We look at the scriptures and we see all of these prophecies about Messiah, and we then Jesus comes and he reveals himself, and the go- the gospel writers and the apostles tell us how he's fulfilling these prophecies, and people believe in him, and then he says, "I'm coming back." And we see unfulfilled prophecies about Messiah, who's going to come back, and he, and his coming back is different than his first coming because he's coming back with the sword and to reign and these things. Well, for a Jew who doesn't believe today, for a Jew doesn't believe Jesus was a Messiah and they're still waiting for Messiah, the the Talmud had a scripture has a contradiction because is he coming lowly on a donkey, right in Zechariah, or is he coming on the clouds? I mean, that's a two. Con- that's a contradict. Like coming on the clouds for someone to come on the clouds isn't being a servant. Like that's you're coming with like hua, right? You're coming on the clouds. You're like a king. You're coming, but but then Zechariah tells us, "Look, behold, your servant riding lowly, humbly on a donkey." Well, this this doesn't kind of compute. Like what's going? There's two obvious comings that they look like they contradict each other. Well, how do we get around this, or how do we uh, acknowledge this? And the Talmud says this, and this is quite amazing. Um, Says Rabbi Joshua, set in opposition two verses. It is written, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. And a quote. While elsewhere it is written, quote, behold, thy King comes unto you lowly, and riding upon a donkey. End of quote. And then he says, if they are uh, meritus or if they have merit, he will come upon the cloud. He'll come with the clouds of heaven. So if Israel has merit. Messiah will come with uh, upon the clouds. If they are not, if they do not have merit, then he will come lowly and riding upon a donkey. Which is the interesting thing is, when Jesus came, Israel obviously didn't have merit. So he came lowly riding upon a donkey. So their own text says, if Israel has merit, he will come upon the clouds. If he does not have merit, he will come upon a donkey, lowly riding upon a donkey. And Jesus came upon the donkey because they did not have merit. And the next time, he will come upon the clouds. And the... In, in, Jew, in Judaism, the, the belief that even predates Jesus was the belief in Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. They believed in two messiahs. The messiah, the son of Joseph, and messiah, the son of David. Now, not Joseph being Jesus' mm-hmm. earthly father, Joseph of Egypt, the son, youngest son of, um, of Jacob. Right And, and Joseph, to, when we see Scripture and Jews believe, Joseph is a Messiah type. When we look at his life, even Christian theology looks at Joseph as a Messiah type. He's a Christ type. Like, look at his life, how he suffers, and then he's given basically the keys of the kingdom. And, and, he, and he's elevated and, and rescues and saves basically everybody. Like, he's this, but he's wrongfully accused, right? He's sinless. He didn't deserve that punishment. But look at... So in Judaism... Predating Jesus, they believed there were Jew, there were Jewish teachings that believed Messiah would come as a suffering servant first. Isaiah 53. He's going to come as a suffering servant. That's Mashiach ben Yosef, and then he's going to come back. He'll he'll leave. Some people even said he'll be wrongfully killed. Like how close they get, and then he's going to come back as Mashiach ben David, the son of David, reigning, conquering, son of man, and and he's going to save the day. So these two. Um, beliefs were already well in the minds of people when Jesus comes. Which then, for people that really believed in those things or had their eyes opened, would have naturally accepted Jesus. That's how. That's how tens of thousands of Jews accepted the fact and didn't have a problem with the fact that their Messiah suffered and died, rose, and they believed it, and that He's going to come back. They didn't. They didn't question that. They didn't have a problem with that theology or that and that belief because. It was already there. But, so it, it's, it's very interesting when you start unpacking this of the debate, the, the very deep debate of who is Messiah. That was a big debate among, like, what's it going to look like? Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. And then finally, the, the Zealots were the messianic soldiers. They really believed, like, they wanted to resurrect the Maccabees. Let's kill all these Romans, get them out. And we'll start a war, and in the Galilee there was about forty thousand of them. We'll start a war, and um, knowing full well we can't beat the Romans, but because we're faithful and we resist, God will come and save us, because He promises He will. He He won't leave lead us leave us to be completely wiped out. And that's what they believe. And they literally, I mean, with just cause, the Romans were. It was just completely unbearable when you actually study the history who could have ever lived under Roman rule coming up to the first uh, first Jewish revolt. Like, it was just completely unbearable. Um, like, I don't think any of us would stand for it, like well, of what the Romans were doing. Um, but they rise up, and they declare war, and they fight uh, uh, for seven years, uh, from 66 to 73. I mean, it's virtually over in 70, so it lasts about four years, but Masada isn't taken until 73, and they're completely wiped out, the Zealot. So, but at the end of uh, Jerusalem, the zealots no longer exist, the Essenes no longer exist, and the Sadducees are, no longer exist. They're all gone because there's no temple, and that's what their whole thing was around. The Pharisees survive, and that's where, where you come, come to modern rabbinic Judaism. So this is the world of Jesus um, in, a, in a very, very, very brief nutshell, because we could go on all night in more depth about this. Mm-hmm. So but with all of these things, when we start re- reading the Gospels and you get into the, the epistles and the letters, but especially the Gospels, like it just knowing these things um, really help us in understanding Jesus's world and the things he taught and the, the mindset of the people. Why did some people reject him? Why did some people ex- uh, accept him? Well, this helps us know why, of what was going on. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. are there any questions or?
0: How long have you been engaged in understanding all of this? Like since a young age, oh. you had a passion for it, or yeah, yeah, a lot of leading it. Leading i getting into the study. A lot of it right? I
1: grew up with, um, on okay. you know, like a foundation I would say, but intensely studying. I've um, 15 <clears throat> years.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah, and then living in Israel. Sure. Studying with rabbis, yeah. study um all of that definitely yeah. helps. Yeah, you yeah, know it's it's fascinating, and I, I, of course when I I have, I have a Bible studies with rabbis, of course I don't believe in everything they say. It's you know they they believe uh, modern Orthodox Jews believe the Talmud is in, is inspired by God, like the Bible, but the Bible is the most inspired. Like but the Talmud is inspired. Well, Christians and I would. Reject that. I look at the Talmud as saying it has incredible historical significance, lots of spiritual significance, and um, it helps us understand Jesus. It's probably one of outside of the Bible. It's one of our best. It's the one of the best sources for understanding the the world of Jesus because it's written by Jews, and it's even though it was compiled 300 years after, uh, huge chunks of it all predate Jesus by hundreds and hundreds of years. So it was just preserved. And if you understand the Jewish mindset for preservation you can really trust. then you can trust the talmud what the talmud's telling you but i mean the, the talmud also went through phases of development so then things were added later but it tells you when they were added so you also can you could zero in on an aspect of the talmud and know that you what you're reading predates jesus and then you would know oh this is just medieval stuff because there are portions of the talmud that Um, Say kind of nasty things about Christians and Jesus, and Mm. you know have come up with their own reactionary uh, responses to crusading Christians (laughs) with swords, right? Like so, it's it's a it's quite an interesting um, thing. But the Talmud's massive. I mean, it's and there's different versions of it, but it's it's a huge source. But um, yeah, so there there would be different differences, um, absolutely. That of you know, I'm not going to share. All, or agree with, but it, it, the, the, one of the biggest values is that it, it challenges, it challenges you to look at something, um, maybe differently, and um, you know, like the, one of the most recent ones I I studied with a, a rabbi was one of the stories of Cain and Abel, and it's quite amazing that um, uh, Cain, his name means acquirer, the one one who acquires, he gets things. And it's amazing, like, and the Jews are legendary for asking questions when there isn't a question. Like, they just ask a question. Why did Cain, why, why are they making sacrifices? There's no command to make sacrifices. Why are they bringing a sacrifice to God? And then what happens here? And Abel's name means it, it's, it's a, an image of, uh, it's, his name is almost not even a name. So it's like his name, it almost foreshadows that he's going to be killed. It means it's like one who just drifts like a river with no direction. It's like he's going nowhere. Like he's and and Cain. Um, in the text, they say Cain doesn't murder him. He kills him. And the the, the I mean, he does. Cain, Abel does die. But the text in the Hebrew seems to point that it wasn't Cain's intent to kill his brother. To beat him up for sure, but not to not to kill him. Which is why it doesn't use the word he murdered him. He, he killed him. And, then, and they had never seen death before. So, but, like, but then you have this incredible image of free will, right? When God, before Abel's killed, God speaks to Cain and like warns him. Your ang- don't let your anger basically master you. And it's kind of like pause. But he, God doesn't intervene. He allows this to happen. But he warns Cain. And it's just interesting to see how Jewish people unpack that and look at it. And then they said that the, the, Abel's blood cries out from the ground. And, it, and the, the literal translation from the Hebrew says is his bloods, plural, cry out from the ground. Not just Abel's, but all of his generations that were wiped out by killing Abel. So it's like, this is what you've done. Not only have you killed your brother, but you've killed all of his offspring. And, and all of his offsprings of future generations that will never exist, they all cry out to you so it's, it's, it's quite interesting you know and, and so I, you know, that's not going to change the theology of salvation or the doctrine of salvation really but it's, it's interesting when you look at these and some people might think oh who cares you know Cain killed Abel this is what happened but right, you start unlocking how, you know, how Jewish people think and how they um, interpret scripture and that does something it, it, it really, it resonates. And well, it is. what you're saying is, you know,
3: when I was younger and being in, like, obviously, Bible studies and that, and, and there was a lot of commonality or a lot of, like, general questions <clears throat> that people were always stumped with. Like, well, one would, you know, be a relationship with, you know, dating and all these things. But, you know, it's interesting. Like, they, they sometimes found that maybe the answer is, like, just the Christian... Typical answers were not really; they didn't seem to be satisfying. And sort of when you when you use you're using mm. examples like this, it's like we never. I don't think we ever
1: really heard some good stuff that really would, would blow our minds. Really. And that's yeah. And you know, Hebraic Roots isn't pulling a, a bunny out of a hat. Mm. You know, a rabbit out of a hat. Um, it's Hebraic Roots isn't also. It's not mm. becoming Jewish. It's looking at in the context yeah. and uh, unraveling and. And giving credence and honor to scriptures and the origins of scriptures and who was used to pen it and that all of these people they weren't they weren't uh, overridden like a drone they didn't become like this mindless drone in writing they had their creativity their culture and these things it inspired fully inspired of course but they're, they're they're bringing in their this the penmanship and how they and how they see things and using that and so then it, 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 it means it's so valuable to look in. And, and so, and, and this is a lifelong thing too, a lifelong journey um, because there's not a single Christian alive that lived 2,000 years ago. Um, so that means, and we're removed from where we are in the world to culture. To, so we have to do double the amount of work, but it does shed light on unique things. Like when you understand, I mean, like the age old argument in the, in the Christian world, is the law and grace. Mm. But it's amazing when you look at it in a Hebraic context, it's very simple.
3: Mm.
1: So it's like, but we're always, we're arguing with <laughs> looking through a Greek filter. Mm-hmm. We're, look, we're looking, med, with certain issues, many Christians are just looking at the text in the wrong yeah. light, and that's why they're always arguing about it. Not I'm not saying I hold all the, mm. the answers of the, the universe, but but they're just looking at it in the wrong light. Mm-hmm. And if you ask yourself, well, Paul and... What it, you know, right back to Moses. Yeah. What, what is the whole purpose of this and how did they see it? Yeah. Well, then it starts unraveling things.
3: Like Yeah, it's like, you know, the, the question would be, why does God allow that? You know, for God lets that right. happen. And I think when you, you, you like you said, you, if you got further into the Aramaic, mm. the Hebrew, yeah. or whatever, it's, it becomes a little more, maybe become can help people become a little more understanding. Yeah. It's uh, the same, just saying, well... We
1: don't want to right you know it's not really and a lot of Christians are um, biblically illiterate yeah lazy and sloppy in their in their reading and they apply everything to themselves mm-hmm. r- r- and forget the source mm. and then they transfer their culture into it
3: yeah
1: anglicizer Canadianizer, whatever you want they just do that right Jesus becomes a pastor he becomes your neighbor who <coughs> you know you have coffee with and, um, and he sees things that you see, and if you can't make sense of it, it's like chronological <laughs> snobbery, <laughs> it's, right? It's like, it's chronological snobbery. <laughs> if, if, it, if it seems like archaic to you or strange, well then we'll throw it in the garbage. I sent, I sent him a thing
3: of a pastor talking right from the culture of how he punched a guy. Punched a guy? <laughs> Yeah, like they did, basically. Led him to Jesus. Led way. him to Jesus. By but I've seen that video.
0: There, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, Jesus so, yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah, so they're really... He's really... Uh, translated
1: yeah. things his, his, from his... Perspective, yes. I mean, like, the Word of God transcends yeah, culture, but we can't forget the foundation and where it came yeah. from. Yeah. And... and who, you know, oftentimes it's funny, like we, we take things and own it when it was like never meant like to be like that. Mm -hmm. Like something like I've seen, you know, I've come across, I can't think of anything in particular, but come across things of written by the prophets and that what, what they wrote, they're writing a physical Israel that is like in sin and needs to repent. You know, if you repent, these amazing things are going to happen. If you don't, this is going to happen. And they're writing and, What we'll zoom in on is just that nice little verse at the end of what the good things that will happen, and we try to own that. Well, I got one for you. Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have
0: for you, says the Lord. Right. plans to prosper. And so everyone has a bumper sticker saying, I'm going to prosper because God knows the plans he has for me. Yeah. It's like, uh, wait
1: a minute. Yeah. We have to look at it in context. Mm -hmm. Who's the audience? Who's the receiver? Um, Even things, I mean... All of this tells us something about God, right? So even something like that, that tells us something about God's character, and and we we simply know by the, the that God loves because He loves all the nations and and He loves people that he, he doesn't want anybody to like go to hell. He doesn't want any like He wants the best. He wants to have a relationship with everybody. But we but you can learn those incredible things. Um, I mean, even things that um, may not be practice today like the sacrificial system right like there is no temple so sheep aren't being killed on the temple mount and you know there's talk about rebuilding the third temple and these things but still um there's but there's great value in studying but why did God because it's God giving these instructions set up like this tabernacle and with these sacrifices and cleanliness and holiness and all of these things Mm -hmm. tell us something about God Mm -hmm. and they all have value because it, because it it also shows, it's incredible, it shows our need for him and the sacrifice that he did. And like mm-hmm. nothing really kind of changed. Like God is the same yesterday, today and forever. So when you're sinful and you come before God in a way that's like the priest going into the temple to make sacrifice. Like it's it's how we come before God in repentance and how the restoration process, the Jews in the time of, Moses, right at the Bible times, they physically play that out. And then God tore the veil, and it's like, you have all this incredible stuff. But mm-hmm. So it, his plan is always the same, and you, we always have to approach God in the same way. It's just, you know, the Lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. It's, it's, all sac- it's a, this whole sacrificial system points to something.
0: I really like what you said in, in the beginning, where... Mm-hmm. What we read today, and, and, and understanding <coughs> the mindset and, and the culture back when mm-hmm. this was written, mm-hmm. it, it puts a whole new dimension on on understanding it. Right. Because I, I think today we read it, trying to understand it with today's mind. You know?
1: Right. And like this is incredible. Like, a, people have no, these endless people have these endless debates of of uh, the Trinity, right? Or try to figure that out. I mean, you still can't. But, there's an incredible piece. Believe uh, me. Yeah. But Did there's I come a, from? Yeah, there's an incredible piece. Like oh Genesis, Genesis, um, uh, let's see, where is it? I was thinking of Fiddler
0: on
3: the Roof through
1: too. soul thing. <laughs> me too. Good I, see, I wanted to put the hat on. Yeah. Oh, I love Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> um, here, let me, one second here, I'm going to show you a little bit of Hebrew here. This is really cool. So this is like, if we look at, oh, it's in covenant. If we look at scripture from a Hebraic perspective, we arrive at a pretty amazing thing. Um, okay, here. Okay, so this word. You didn't show this slide before. No, I didn't. Oh. Okay. So this word is, that's the very first Hebrew word that appears in the Bible. Birsheet. That's it's basically Genesis or in the beginning. That is the very like ours says in the beginning, but right there, bare sheets. You can see, I mean, you can validate right there. It's the word. There is the word. That's the first word, and and so the, and I'm not going to get too crazy here, but the, every Hebrew letter has a has a numerical value that goes way back. Um, and I mean, within reason, there's a really neat thing regarding how they look at words and what how and how they piece things so I'm going to do this very rabbinic so they look at so Bereshi is here now there there's uh, two words in one okay Berit Brit see Berit, and then there's another word in the middle okay so Brit is covenant.
2: (laughs) yeah
1: okay I'm doing this very rabbinic but this is really cool because I'm gonna tie this to the Trinity okay so Bereshit, and this, is, this, is, this goes back a long, long, long time, but this is how a modern Orthodox Jew could, would teach this. So Bereshit, we, we, we look at that, we've studied that, and we know that there's two words, because why would God use this as the first word that he gives to Moses? Why is the Bible open? The very first word that God breathed is that. Why? Right, why? Why doesn't he, like, before time began. Why doesn't he use this like a different phrase? But he uses this. Because they say, encapsulating that one word is God's relationship for the entire scripture and all of, all of the world. So he's bring, he brings covenant. And the sign of the covenant is circumcision, but also the passing between the pieces, the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant. That is God's relationship. Between there is esh, esh, fire. So fire, when it's, when it's just with no boundaries, when there's nothing to contain it, it runs wild. But when it's contained within covenant, that is like the perfect thing. God's covenant to man, God is in the midst of it as fire. The Romans crucified us.